you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Matthew's Gospel where we continue along in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we find ourselves in verses 33 of chapter 5 uh, in and on to the end of the chapter. Well, you know, today, uh, if you happen to be a uh, Texas Longhorn football fan, it's a bad day for you. Um, if you happen to be uh, a Texas Aggie football fan, it's a good day for you. And um, as, as one who has uh, stood in opposition to the Texas Aggies for all these years, uh, I am uh, remiss to let you have your moment just for a moment uh, because we all know that uh, you will be humbled soon. You always are. Every year, uh, we listen to these Aggies talk about how they're going to be in the college football playoff and, and how they're going to win the division and go on and, and do all these things, and they never do. They never, ever do. Speaking of making false promises, Jesus has a word for you today that he gently wants to remind not just all of our fighting Texas Aggies, but for all of us, that our words mean something and they matter. And what we say and how we say things matter. That our integrity and our character before the Lord, it matters. And so what we speak and, and how we say and whether or not we let our yes be yes and our no be no, how we pray for and love our enemies or those that stand in opposition to us at times, those things matter. They matter to God. And they should matter to his people. Jesus finds himself in the midst of a, of a city and a culture that has sort of gone awry. They are men and women who have gotten lost in the steps of legalism, of prideful religion, demonstrating that religion, showing off that religion in ways that did not reflect the character and the heart of God. And so Jesus, in only the way that Jesus could do, he begins to reshape their thinking and how they think about their yeses and their noes and the oaths that they take before them. Jesus finds himself before a crowd of religious people and seekers who have come together to hear him and he begins to address them in a variety of different ways and we've seen that in the context of the Beatitudes and, and how he feels about our anger and how he feels about marriage and now Jesus begins to speak to the heart of the matter, if you will, and the hatred that exists in the lives of these people who have gathered before him. Men who have made a show out of taking oaths and making vows before one another and their teachers and their rabbis. And so Jesus begins to speak to them. And I want us to begin reading in verse 33, where the word of the Lord for us this morning says this, Have you heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn? But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I've often heard this passage of Scripture quoted Oftentimes, in well-meaning times and in times of great purpose and intensity, that uh, they are consciously objecting in any regards to sign anything. And, and you'll hear this verse often quoted, to let my yes be yes and my no be no, isn't that and shouldn't that be good enough? 
Well, friend, we would all hope on the other side of, of eternity that that yes will be good enough to be a yes and that no will be good enough to be a no. But there are times in which we wrestle. And here what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is addressing specifically the sin that existed oftentimes in those who would make a show out of their yeses and would make a show out of their noes. They'd make a big deal out of it. Not just to accomplish whatever it is that they wanted to accomplish, but they wanted everyone to know the stance and where it is that they stood. Sinclair Ferguson rightly identifies this passage being rooted in the Ten Commandments, specifically Exodus 27, where he says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. In Leviticus, elsewhere, we see where God tells them to not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. God reminding his people that our yeses must be yeses and we must be true to those yeses and our noes, we must be true to those knows we do not swear falsely by his name or any other name and so profane the name of the Lord our God. Oaths were understood within the Old Testament and even today they were concerned with one's future actions. A vow is something that was related to the use of objects and, and their specific use. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, he is speaking rightly to what we would say is the duplicity of man. In that we fail to understand that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool and therefore no promise can ever be made, no word ever be spoken without it being done in God's presence. This is God's chastisement, if you will, to his people. This is his reminder of those things. That there is not one area in our life in which we can evade him. There is no promise that we can make under our breath that he does not know no word ever spoken without it being done in the presence of our God. And what Jesus is doing them in this moment is he is reminding them of this promise. That God is with them and God hears them. And every word that we utter and even every thought that we think is heard and does not evade the Lord our God. God. Then Jesus goes on in verse 38, and he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him and the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I was a sophomore in high school. We were on the athletic field, and I, I witnessed before me, I was a, not one of the upperclassmen, but I watched two gentlemen, if you will, teammates, get into a fight on an athletic field. And I watched as one of them just pulverized the other, and the other just stood back, and, and he allowed it to happen. And there were so many others that just watched that stood by, I being one of them, though I wasn't the nearest to the incident that took place. As we walked back up to the field house that afternoon, one of my friends asked this other gentleman who, who took two right on the chin, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you stand up for yourself? And I'll remember this for the rest of my days. He says, well, doesn't Jesus tell us to turn the other cheek? And I thought for a moment, what a weird and puzzling statement to say. 
And I've thought about that story often as the older as I've gotten and I've, I've thought to see and, 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 and discern what it is that Jesus was saying here in this moment. And, and when Jesus makes the statement, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also, he is not talking about in the instance of a violent crime or even an assault. But rather what New Testament scholars would contend is he's talking more about, a, about an insult, figuratively. Almost like a, a backhand slap, if you would, across the face to insult the other person. Most likely, this was the meaning. And Jesus is saying that when we are insulted for his namesake, that, that we show our response, that we feel no need in this moment, in the midst of being insulted, to retaliate on those that would insult us. And by the response that we give, we are then pointing them to, to something that is greater and deeper and giving them more purpose in their life as they see the gospel displayed by the people of God. Understanding that our reputations are secure in and, and of him and through God. He is the one that, that secures those things and that we don't have to respond and insult others as they insult us. He goes on in verse 40 and he says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Being under Roman law, it was quite permissible that if a Roman soldier or even a citizen, for that matter, saw a Jew walking by, they could ask that Jewish individual to do whatever it is that they wanted them to do. If they asked them to, to carry the load or, or to walk with them or to go get them water, they were required by, by law to listen and, and to obey. And in that moment, it was nothing but a sheer act of humiliation for the Jew to be humbled. And in that moment, in a way that, that he was being looked down upon and, and insulted as that soldier or as that citizen asked him to do whatever it is that he asked him to do. And Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the extra. Go above and, and go beyond. You see, Jesus is speaking to the heart of what we do and how we live in the midst of our relationships. And how do we overcome the ill will and even the, the evil oftentimes that exists and, and not operating in good faith? What Jesus is saying is that through our acts and our righteous deeds in Christ that we go the extra mile to win the brother over to the kingdom as we watch God work in the midst of their lives. He is talking about our relationships and overcoming the conflict oftentimes that existed with our acts of good, not good in and of ourselves, not good that we manifest or make up or good that we discover, but the good that resides in us because the righteousness of Christ is in us. And the deeds and the, and the goodness that we walk in and the, and the goodness that we portray to the world who, who watches is the, the goodness that exists only from and in and through our heavenly Father. You know, our culture teaches something quite different when it comes to difficult relationships. Oftentimes, the, the message of the culture is, is when we get into difficult relationships with, with people, we, we pick up and we just leave. We walk away. 
Certainly there are instances in our lives where we should perhaps distance ourselves from some relationships, particularly those that are harmful to us or physically harmful to us. But the mode of the culture is if you don't like this group, go find another one. And we do this in churches sometimes, do we not? We get disoriented and uh, disenfranchised and whatever it is, or perhaps something happens within the body. And so the mode is, well, we'll just pick up and, and we'll just go and leave and go somewhere else. And I've watched in 17 years of ministry this happen from time to time, all just because we failed to come to the table at some point and to reconcile and to be reconciled with one another. To go the extra mile to win the person. To carry the tunic, to give the cloak, to turn the cheek, to not respond in ways that we have been responded to. And Jesus' word for us is to stay and to commit and to, to be with someone. To not cut them off or to cut them out. To not be overly insensitive or too sensitive to what they may say or not say. Someone that even perhaps doesn't respect our, our faith or, or our worldview, that, that we are to still attempt to treat them, if at all possible, always with, with dignity and respect. And if at possible, we live at peace with those brothers and with those sisters. That we seek out the goodness of, of others. We seek out their well-being in the gospel, in the word, under the authority of the church. And we seek out these relationships, even though we perhaps struggle. Do you know that if you are intimately involved with someone in church life, there will be moments of difficulty. There will be moments of, of misunderstanding. There will be moments of, of hardship as, as we work and we labor to, to see the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And conflict is a, a normal part within any family, within any marriage, within any relationship. The question is what we do with that conflict as it approaches. And do we seek to remedy it in godly ways? And do we seek to pursue the, the gospel in the midst of those conflicts? And do we seek to honor Christ in all that we do? But friends, I want to say this to you as a caveat because I believe it's necessarily to, to be said. That if you are in or you find yourself in a relationship in particular that is abusive, physically abusive, criminally abusive, Jesus is not telling you to be the doormat of the abuser. He's not telling you to, to turn the cheek and pretend that it didn't happen and, and to ignore it. Jesus is not telling you to stay and to be walked on and to be walked over and to be physically abused. He is not saying that here in this moment, turning the other cheek. That is not God's intention for you to stay in an unsafe situation where you are the one being exploited. And so what do you do if you're in that moment and how do you give counsel for those that are in that moment? You find someone you trust that you believe is walking with God. You find someone in law enforcement, someone that you tell and you, and you trust them enough to, to walk forward and, and rightly before the law, but most importantly, rightly before God. We, we don't have to be people's doormats to be abused. And we as a people of God, we, we must stand up for those that are being exploited and those that have been taken advantage of. This is the call of the gospel in our life. 
to protect those who cannot protect themselves. It is not God's intention for you to remain in an unsafe situation or a situation where you are being exploited. It's not God's word for us. That's not what Jesus meant on the Sermon on the Mount. And we must understand that. I've heard, even within my lifetime, Perhaps you stay and and you endure the abuse so that you can win the brother or the sister to Christ. Friends, that is nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. And so that is Jesus' word to not only understand that we have not been called to be exploited, but we are elsewhere admonished in Romans to detest the things that are evil in this world to cling to to what is good. Jesus goes on in verse 43, and he says, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A novel thought in the midst of Jesus' sermon as he speaks to the religious leaders of the day and the Jews in particular who absolutely hated and despised the Romans. They resented the the occupation. They thought it was immoral and illegal and and detestable before God. They were their enemies, though they tolerated them because they had no choice. And here in this moment, Jesus looks them right back in the eyes and he dots them right between and he says, I tell you to love those who persecute. Love your enemies. Demonstrate the gospel and the good news. Forgive your enemies. Hard to do. At times, if we're being honest, and we must understand that that forgiveness that we apply here by way of application in this moment to love our neighbor and to love our enemies and to pray for them, we we pray for reconciliation. We pray for God's redemptive work to be seen this side of the cross. But forgiveness, it always comes at a cost. It costs something. It it comes with suffering. It it comes with nails and thorns and sweat and blood. But we forgive because we as a people have been forgiven. And so we work towards that end. We understand the difficulty that that exists within that and, and we labor for those things. But when Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for them, that you may also be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. God's common grace on display to the world. And and he sees it and he knows it. And he knows every injustice and every heartache and and every place of despair that that we can be. Every time we are persecuted and, and suffer for righteousness' sake, he knows those things. And so we make it our aim to labor and strive with integrity before him, with character before the Lord our God, 
to walk with him rightly, being empowered by him, practicing this aspect of forgiveness and loving our neighbors. You know, if you are in conflict with someone and maybe despise them or loathe them in some way, the more you begin to pray for them, the more perhaps your heart might perhaps change for them. The more God may begin to do something in, in your own life, to begin to move you and to, and to mold you in, in some other way that you was unexpected and that you didn't see. But when we pray for our enemies, it leads us down a path where we're able ultimately to be able to forgive them in, in some way and in some form and in some fashion. But the myth about forgiveness is that oftentimes if I forgive, then I have to forget. Well, friends, I don't believe that to be true in the gospel or in the scriptures. When you've been hurt, it's almost impossible to just forget about it. All of us have experienced some sort of, of hurt in our lives, and, and we wrestle with that, but we understand that God suffered for our sin, and he put it away, our sins, by a choice. He chose to forgive. And every time perhaps God would think about that sin and that depravity, he chooses to see that sin now being resolved through the blood of his son. That it has been satisfied. And when we walk in forgiveness and in a, in a posture, in a rhythm of forgiveness, we have to make that same choice. To love our enemies means that we must forgive our enemies and pursue that forgiveness at that end. But forgiveness also does something as we pray for our enemies and as we develop hearts oftentimes for them and we see ourselves not in an adversarial way towards them, but we begin to, to love them perhaps as our own and begin to see them for who they are and, and what they are. In need of the same Savior that you and I are in need of today, to walk in that grace and to walk in that forgiveness, to overcome that wrong, to overcome that heartache, that evil that you see or perhaps that you experience as you show and you demonstrate grace, as you love them, as you go the extra mile, as you give them your cloak and your tunic and you turn the other cheek. We are to be agents within this life of reconciliation. And when we refuse oftentimes to, to pray for our enemies and to love our enemies and to pursue a, a position of, of forgiveness by way of application here, I don't know what author said this, I read it years ago, but he simply said it this way, unforgiveness is like locking yourself in a prison of bitterness and you are the one that threw away the key. The person that, that has hurt you and has offended you, they've already moved on and they've already gone, but you've trapped yourself in your own prison and you've locked yourself in there and you've destroyed the key when we refuse to forgive. Well, I know, friends, that forgiveness is easier spoken about behind a pulpit than it is practiced oftentimes in our everyday life. It's extremely difficult at times. And what I want to end with and conclude with this morning is I want to give us just three or four practical things that we walk out of here with when we begin to understand if I'm going to love my enemies and go the extra mile, even for those that would persecute me, what is it and how is it that I navigate this life and, and how do I pursue that? I think first and foremost, when possible, overlook the offense. 
Overlook it. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11. Romans 12.18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Number two is this. As we focus on loving our enemies or loving those who perhaps stand against us or practicing forgiveness, can I just tell you pastorally to take your time. Don't respond in in anger. Don't respond abruptly when when you are spoken to in anger or spoken about abruptly. Don't respond in that moment. Walk away for a moment and then come back to the table when cooler heads prevail. Take a time out. Number three, and perhaps I think this might be the most important thing, is in the midst of conflict, in the midst of of issues, in the midst of being persecuted, in the midst of, of having relational strife, one of the key questions that we must ask pastorally in the midst of that is not what has the other person done to me, but we ask God in the midst of this, what is it that he is teaching you? And what is he showing you about yourself and, and your heart and, and your own actions and in the everyday relational conflict that often exists? Where, where have I become culpable in those things? Physical abuse not included in that. But where am I responsible in my strife? Number four, we apologize for our wrongdoing without qualification. We don't justify it. We, we shouldn't be defensive. As we're seeking to restore, and this is the heart of, of Jesus' message here in this moment, is about restoring the relationships that exist and overcoming the wrong by being good and the good that God has given his, his people. We apologize for our wrongdoing. We rake them over the, the head with, with coals of kindness and, and warmth and, and compassion, but we also must seek to forgive Fully, one of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Ken Sandy. And Ken talks a lot about forgiveness, and his books have been instrumental in my life over the years in sort of seeking to de-escalate conflict and to pursue pastoral care for God's people. And Ken gives a couple of things that I think are helpful in this moment, that when we promise and practice forgiveness, what we are saying is, I'm not going to think about this incident again. I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to let it be. I'm not going to bring it up again and, and use it against you in, in some way. And, and well, you hurt me before and you'll hurt me again. And, and certainly there are cautions that exist and there are repercussions in relationships when, when there is harm that is given. But it doesn't mean I'm going to hold this over your head. Marriages would be wise to take this advice, would we not? To not hold things over, but we practice forgiveness, not bringing it back up, uh, not using it against. And, and perhaps maybe this may be the most challenging aspect of it as we refuse to talk about it with other people. Somewhere very quickly a line oftentimes becomes cross between dealing with our, our heart and, and our heartache and, and the offense that has been given to us, and it moves very quickly at times into places of, of gossip about the individual. I refuse to, to address this with a broader group, and, and I won't talk about it to others, and I'm not going to allow it to stand between us or hinder our relationship any longer. And I'm going to move forward and move on, compelled and changed by the gospel of Jesus, 
walking in forgiveness, pursuing to love my enemies, pursuing to love those who would persecute me, who would uh, create injustices towards me or towards you, that, that I love them and I meet them precisely where they are. And we overcome their evil with good. They're wrong with good. And we pursue that reconciliation in the gospel. Friends, if you are here today and you do not know Jesus, can I say this to you? You will never fully understand what it means to be reconciled with one another until you are first reconciled with God. Until you understand the forgiveness that God has given and shown you, you will not be able to forgive as God intends you to forgive in your own relationships. To be restored in your own relationships before you are rightly restored to God, the Father through Christ. And the Bible says that all those who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. They would be redeemed by him. And that then, therefore, we can let our yeses be yeses and our noes be noes. And we can love and pray for our enemies and those perhaps that would persecute us only first and foremost when we understand what God through Christ has done for us. And so we call upon his name. And we ask him to save us and redeem us and to reconcile us to himself. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we ask that in the name of Christ that you would redeem our time. I pray for those that are here today that are struggling with forgiveness, struggling with, with bitterness towards their enemies, that let the, the words of, of Jesus speak over us and sing over us to forgive because we have been forgiven of so much. I pray for the hurt that exists, perhaps in this room, Deep within the hearts of those that would hear or listen online, I pray, Father, that your spirit would tenderly and, and pastorally, that you would fill them and that you would mend those hurts. And you would restore to them the joy of what it means to follow you and, and to have our whole hearts committed to you. So, Father, would you help us this week practice forgiveness? Would you help us practice letting our yes be yes, our no's be no's? Would you help us love and pray for those who are our enemies? And for we ask these things in the name of Christ and God's people said,